Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. Welcome to episode number 103 of the Gateworld Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm David. And this is the show where two nerds talk about Stargate. This week we're up to episode number two of the new season of Stargate Universe, Aftermath, aired last week on Sci-Fi Channel, and wow, this one just punched me in the stomach and then wouldn't let up. Yeah, this one definitely a step up from uh, from from last week. This is the episode, the kind of episode that I've come to expect from Stargate Universe. Uh, profound in in many ways, compelling, emotional, smart. This is one of the the slower ones that I that I have have enjoyed very much. I think. Yeah, there's some huge developments for the show's mythology, which we'll talk about, and some obviously some major uh, character moments. Uh, be aware if you've not watched Aftermath, there's some stuff going on in this episode, so there's definitely going to be some spoilers coming up. Definitely see the episode before listening to this, unless of course you want to torture yourself. Then by all means, keep keep tuning in. Well, now David, how are you doing? I realized after I listened to last week's show that I was totally remiss and didn't ask you on air how the Stargate auctions went. Oh, we didn't even talk about that, did we? No. Stargate Auctions did extremely well. So you were in Seattle for a weekend. I was in Seattle for a week. I was downtown, yeah, downtown at the Experience Music Project Sci-Fi Museum, which is owned by the 37th richest man in the world. We, we sold 851 amazing props, costumes, set deck pieces, and art. It performed very, very well. It almost exactly brought in the amount of money that we thought it would. So... Hmm. That that was kind of creepy, actually. That it was that it was uh, that it was that accurate, that spot on. Guessed it really close. Nice. Yeah, exactly. Now these uh, these great pieces are about to be in the hands of uh, of the people who won them. We we start shipping for that auction this Monday. Cool. It's nice that um, that stuff is going to be out there, not sitting in a warehouse in Vancouver until the end of time, and not destroyed. Exactly. Uh, that's it's the going thing. into the hands of collectors. Yeah, people are like, you know, I'm I'm sorry that it's getting in the hands of someone said I'm uh, on somewhere I forgot where I read. It. I'm sorry that it's being dispersed, and I and I replied and I said better than it being destroyed because that's what mm-hmm. happens to this stuff. They're not gonna. They can't believe me. My my company has been holding on to this stuff for a year, and it's expensive to store it. It's very yeah. expensive. Glad to get those assets out there and to the people who um who who deserve them the most. Who, who will love them and will take care of them. So And now it's out there in the fan community, and hopefully we'll start seeing, you know, just like you see original Star Trek phaser pistols on auction every once in a while, you'll see Zat guns 20 years from now being auctioned. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this stuff is going to circulate now for the time being. You're never going to see it like this again. Did you buy anything? I didn't buy anything. I was so fascinated by the auction, though. This has a, had a live webcast. Yes, and I I ended up watching probably hours of it. I watched quite a lot of it. I watched some of the big items go, and then other times of the evening because I'm, I'm eight hours ahead of the auction. I would just have kind of have it on in the background, mm-hmm. and then just kind of hop over and you know alt tab and look at what was going. But I didn't get anything. Did stuff go for for my budget range, which is like a buck fifty? There were items that sold for fifty bucks. Concept art for. Uh... Toker costumes. I really want one of those Asgard stones. That's what I'd like to have. The Asgard stones. A nice little tchotchke, huh? To go with my Zat gun. I do I do have an authentic Zat gun. Oh, there you go. That was used in the show? I don't know for sure. I actually haven't physically laid eyes on it yet. It was okay. shipped to my U.S. address. There were only a, a couple of items that um, actually didn't get sold at all. Mayborn's King Staff did not sell. I was really surprised at that. 
and mm. um, a, a rolling wraith bomb from the episode Midway. That did not sell either, nor did a wraith ultrasound. So, but pretty mm. much everything else did. The, the, I will say that the costumes went for dirt cheap. As far as eBay this year, we've, we've been selling all year on eBay. I mean, the, the live auction, as far as costumes went, was like a clearance sale. It was amazing how, how cheap those things were. And from my perspective, wow. disappointing. But the props did amazingly well. The weapons did extremely well. So what were the big, big ticket items? Obviously, SG-1's location, Stargate, was sold. SG-1's location, was Stargate, was item. sold to uh, an, an unspecified uh, bidder that has yet to be announced for 70000 The uh, Gate Room 70. Stargate segments, which I think are the prettiest went for $5,000 each. The ancient drone went for 7 grand. The zero point module from the Siege Part 3 went for 7 grand. Uh, the mm. other ZPMs went for 6500, 4500. The ancient communication terminal, the one with the blue crystal on the top went for $1500, as did the MALP. The MALP only went for $1500. 15 for the MALP? Yeah, $1500 wow. for the original MALP. Yeah. That's a price. That's a, that's an iconic piece. Yeah, but it's it's very mm-hmm. large. You know, you yeah. you have to factor that in. I mean, that's got to have be, a basement to put it in. Exactly, you have to you have to find space for it. But it's it's not that. It's the shipping. The shipping is for oh. that item is probably going to be another grand. I would surmise. Wow. The Horus Guard helmet went for thirty thousand dollars. Oh, nice! That's Anubis, a beautiful piece. The Anubis helmet of the type that was worn in the movie went for eighteen grand. Apophis's Serpent Guard helmet went for four or five. We had another Serpent Guard helmet, the silver one that sold for eight. So, you know, it, it did really good. It did it did mm-hmm. really good. And, and definitely Thor went for 15 and uh, Thor? grand. Somebody Thor went for Thor. 15 grand. His chair went for $800. 800 Yeah. His beautiful chair <laughs> went for $800. So I really hope the person who got Thor also got the chair. He didn't. Um, so that he has some place to sit. Yeah, he didn't. All, all together, very successful auction. It was fun. Cool. And the eBay auctions, I know, are starting up again this month. Tomorrow, actually, this Sunday. But that last Sunday now, for anyone. So listening. by the time the podcast is up, there are there are PropWorks eBay auctions going on, and you can read all about it at StargateArtifacts.com. The main discussion. And once again, our main discussion topic is aftermath. Episode two hundred two of Stargate Universe aired in the U.S. on October fifth, two thousand ten. Rob Cooper wrote this one. Uh, one of my favorite writers in the Stargate franchise. He's obviously been with the franchise since year one. And uh, wrote a few episodes this season. He also directed Malice, which is a highly anticipated episode. I'm really excited about Malice. That's going to be episode eight. This is the first time I've heard of that episode. And then he's stepping away from Stargate at the end of this season. This is, this is one of the last Rob Cooper episodes. So, initial impressions before we get into it? Uh, like I've already said, very, very good episode. Very solid episode. Very little about this episode that I, I thought was, was subpar. If anything, I think. You know, it it is revealing in many ways, you know, in terms of sets and in terms of some uh, uh, personalities and, and some goals and objectives. Rush, I, I think we're beginning to understand a lot more in this episode, what he knows and what he doesn't know specifically, which was kind of surprising um, mm. I, I guess I'll say it right here. He he doesn't. He admits to Gloria that he doesn't know Destiny's true purpose, which was a shocker to me. You know, all he knows yeah. is that it's called Destiny for a reason, and that's He's all he knows. That, that it has one. That it has a purpose. Yeah, but he doesn't seem to know what it is. And if Gloria can be taken as a facet of the ship's personality, then what we've been kind of suspecting is true. That Destiny is not out there to do, explore the gates that uh, the ship is connecting with. The gates are 
Seven Elevens. I mean, you you, you get you go <laughs> and you get supplies, and then you get back on the ship and you proceed. Mm-hmm. Stretch um, your legs. So it, it, you stretch your legs, Literally. right? Exactly. The ship has a greater purpose. The ship is out there for another reason. It's, uh, and I, I heard an interesting theory, and and I think I think we should dedicate perhaps a podcast in the future before it's revealed what Destiny's purpose is. I would love to have a podcast or at least a discussion, maybe in this episode, as to what. Uh, as to what the purpose of the ship being out there is. Yeah, that may be coming soon. I think that we're supposed to get another big chunk of that before the mid-season break. Okay. So, yeah, big. Uh, you mentioned big set piece. The Destiny Bridge is a big, beautiful set piece that uh, if you've been following online info at all, if you've watched much in the way of, of SGU's trailers over the summer, then you know that this was coming. Um, the bridge is our, our big new area of the ship that we discover in Season 2. And this is going to be around for a while. And Rush hasn't revealed that he's found it to the others. Yeah, he hasn't told anybody. And he makes it clear as the episode goes along that, I don't know if it was he that said it or Glory that said it to him, this ship was meant to be run by a crew of people. Glory says all these you have a crew. Stations. Right. Yeah, you and, have a crew. Why don't you why don't you let them in on the secret? Rush doesn't doesn't trust their competence, I don't think. And he, I don't think he he trusts that they'll accept uh, Destiny's mission. They want they want to go home. Yeah, and they may take the ship his, and turn it around. Or his interpretation. His, his control of it. I mean, he Destiny is so important to him and what Destiny is doing is so important to him. Obviously, he doesn't want somebody like Young saying, "Okay, if we have control now, let's turn the ship around." even if it's going to take us another million years to get back to Earth. But, you know, he's, he says it again in this episode, Colonel Young is the wrong man for the job, mm-hmm. and Rush thinks he can do a better job making the big command decisions. Mm-hmm. And I think thematically that's one of the big things that's going on in Aftermath, is Rush gets to make a big command decision, he picks this planet, he causes Destiny to come out of FTL, uh, he tells our guys that Destiny wants us to go to this planet, it's within shuttle range. Uh, and then he presses the shuttle to continue go to go into the atmosphere, even after he realizes that it's quite dangerous to do so. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the episode, I think it's pretty clear that Rush is no longer, he's not necessarily even confident anymore that he's going to be able to do this, that he's got what it takes to make the right command decisions. Were you surprised at seeing Franklin? See, that's the thing that the teaser does, that the, the opening recap does. And they 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 show they show the previously on, and yeah. we see Franklin disappear. To so that when you see him again, it's not surprising. I mean, even though it's just a few minutes later, it's kind of like, well, yeah. we can, we can now expect that this is going to be followed up on. I wasn't thinking about it terribly specifically. So the, I, I had sort of an instantaneous, oh, Franklin. Uh, yeah. But but yeah, obviously he had he had already been seeing Gloria for a while there, so. I was expecting that uh, that the ship would would use him again, not necessarily as a facet of its personality, and that's not even confirmed yet. Although it's a likely guess, considering it it uh, f- used Franklin, it digested Franklin, and it used Franklin to identify several things that Rush overlooked that Rush didn't necessarily have in his brain before. I think that's that's one of the things that that's one of the ways of of knowing that he's not going insane when these intelligences that are communicating with him are presenting him with information that he either did not absorb or hasn't hasn't remembered of taking in it's interesting it's it's interesting if if uh, if the ship uses uh, different personalities to represent dis- different facets of its personality you know you got you got gloria as a more sympathetic person a more more contemplative yeah. more inward and then you've got you've got franklin who's very technical and cold hard facts kind of personality let's talk about this you do you think that they're both manifestations of destiny because at one point rush 
uh, verbalizes the fact that he doesn't know if he's just going crazy and imagining these two, that they're both manifestations of his own fractured psyche, or mm-hmm. if they really are attempts by destiny, if, if destiny has some sort of AI to communicate with him. My, my opinion is that, yeah, it's, the ship is using both of those personalities, but, I mean, Gloria mm. either, either lied or was, was truthful in saying, Franklin, who's Franklin? You know, who are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, she didn't. Um, she didn't know. Yeah, my theory is that he's he's right on both counts. I think that Gloria is a manifestation of himself, and I think that Franklin is is really destiny, or maybe exactly. even really Franklin, because Franklin sort of disappeared. Yeah, he he was snarky with him. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's act not not just something in Russia's head, but maybe Franklin actually you know, slipped in the back door and is physically present in the room, and Rush thinks that he's hallucinating him. But the guy is actually physically there. In the exact same spot where Gloria was standing? That's interesting. Yeah, but I, do, I think Franklin is the ship, and I think Gloria is, is Rush going nuts. Yeah, because the, the ship didn't digest Gloria. But the ship was tied in to Rush's subconscious, so it could have taken the exact mm-hmm. same amount of information needed. There's also the question as to if Franklin is really brought about by the destiny or not. If uh, There's also the question if Franklin was really present in the room as a hologram or as some kind of a physical form. Because we know the ship can generate holograms. The, the displays, a lot of the displays are holographic. Or if uh, the ship left some kind of a neural chip in his head and is using that to, uh, to interface with him. And there's one other part of the bridge story that I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Rush looks at the console a couple of times. The first time when he finds the planet that he sends the shuttle to, and the second time at the end of the episode when he discovers whatever it is that Destiny is, is now flying up on. Do you get the sense that this is... He mentions a database towards the end of the episode. Do you get the sense that he's looking at a database of like static information maybe that the Cedar ships have sent sent back? Or is it like real-time sensor data, like Destiny's long-range sensors are picking up this, this thing coming up? My impression was that it was the, the information that the Cedar ships had sent back, and, and Destiny mm-hmm. is using its sensors to uh, identify the flight path and, and the gates that, are, that it is in range of as it comes along. But you know that at the same time, the Cedar ships might not necessarily have recorded. The Cedar ship wouldn't have recorded a buried Stargate because it would have been placing the Stargate on that planet at the time. So that right. has to be new information, or the, or the, like they suggested, that, like Rush suggests that that the gates are sending information to Destiny as well. You know, like right. in a similar way that the DHD he speculates sends. that that that's the case exactly. And if you talk, it, it, look at Eli's remote. Eli's remote receives real time information from somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily the Kino. Mm-hmm. So the, it, it, he knows when Destiny jumps away because of the. I think it's tied into the clock of the ship, so that you know whenever that that countdown clock begins, the the remotes get that information. And when it's when it's timed out, it's timed out. When uh, Destiny tries to dial into the gate on the planet and you get that rumble, Eli receives a new download of information, and he knows that Destiny is back. So mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting. Information exchange is, is one of the many questions that the, the show is just beginning to answer in terms of how that works. Yeah, it seems likely that the Stargates are sort of used as relays in that, mm-hmm. in that sense. And just to pause for a moment, we are kind of mashing our quibbles section into the main discussion now. This is kind of a quibbly technical talk. For those who like quibbles, I think we should we should maybe bring them back next week. If we have anything to quibble about. If we have anything. Because, yeah, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't even thinking about quibbles last week or this week. Yeah. 
Okay, so bridge. There's a big old captain's chair in the middle. So apparently the ancients intended on having a, a commander of some sort. Assigned, yeah. yeah, a commander in addition to obviously specialized people for you know sitting at these stations that are around the bridge. Well, we've seen the ancients have um, they have that 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 similar kind of hierarchy. You've seen it with Moros. You've seen it with the Aurora commander. So that's uh, that's that's not all that surprising. So that the destiny was designed to have a master. You know, it certainly seems like uh, it's it's picked one. Yeah, that was kind of a head scratcher at the beginning, trying to figure out had Rush been to the bridge before, or was this his first yeah. time finding? Because he sort of, he comes into park. You know, he's got a, he's had a bad dream. He's he's remembering being tortured at the hands of of the Lucian Alliance. And what's all uh, that about? Yeah, maybe there's so something more he, to that. Yeah, he can't sleep. He goes into the the lab where where Doctor Park is working and and fixes her computer problem. And then he just sort of turns around and starts and walking down the walks, corridors. Yeah. And suddenly he's at this big door that we've never seen before, and he knows the buttons to push to open the door. Well, if you watch his mannerisms, he's awfully hesitant. It's like he's—it's almost like he's never done this before. You know, it's yeah. like he's never been there before. He's looking around. You know, he's awfully—he's taking it in what appears to be for the first time. So I thought that that was—that uh, was curious because it. You know, he he goes through all the motions. It it doesn't look like he's trying to figure out how the heck to get in there. He doesn't type in the the code wrong. I was wondering if the dream gave him some information. I don't know how a a, a Lucian slash Gould pain stick would relay that information. It's not like he he was in Telford's body and Telford. But but if if Telford w- had access to the bridge, he probably would have been there already. So it's interesting well, to see. And what Gloria says to him when he first gets there is that his program worked. The, yeah. the thing that he set up at the end of Human last season, uh, when he got the number about the 47 or 43 or whatever it was, he, he had the, the computer system running some sort of program, computation, yeah. computation to, to, to gain access to, to Destiny's control systems. So, I mean, the only thing I can think of is that when he was fixing the computer with Park, that after he fixed it, you know, the results of, of that computation just happened to come up. On the screen at that moment, he saw them. The story has evolved as well. Destiny is no longer a um, runaway train. We can stop the ship as well, mm-hmm. but uh, mm-hmm. they they kind of throw in a loophole of an added complication now. If it, unless the ship can stretch its legs over four, a four hour period, you can permanently damage uh, the ship's hyperdrive engines. So how yeah. he knows that, I don't know per se, but uh, it's 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 a it's a new rule. They're establishing new rules now that we have greater access. Which uh, I, I certainly hope doesn't end up being handcuffs on the writers. When we go into FTL, apparently we have to stay in FTL for at least four hours. Otherwise, we risk damaging the ship. But we can stop it if if we need to. Or at least Rush can for now. Which yeah. was a really interesting dynamic. All, uh, all through season one, it was, Destiny has brought us here. It's come out of FTL at this planet. It apparently has a reason. There's maybe some resource that it knows mm-hmm. that we need. Rush says that... He's been doing everything he can to, to communicate to the ship the, the needs that they have. He's been, I guess, typing information to the computer. Destiny, we need this. Destiny, we need that. They yeah, haven't been very know. clear about that. Not specific. But it's funny because now that we know that Rush is the one who's, who's causing the ship to come out of FTL at these points, the, the other characters, of course, don't. So mm-hmm. you get Brody and the guys just sort of speculating. You know, Destiny yeah. Why is it doing this? seems to have brought us here for some, some yeah. reason. And Rush says, it's not magic. Uh, Before we get to the planet, then, we've got another problem going on on board Destiny, which is we've got these Lucian Alliance 
folk. They're and beginning to get out of hand. What the heck do we do with them? We have many more mouths to feed now. Uh, we are starving. We are all starving together. Very few of them prove to be worthwhile. I, I think you've. I, I think that the writers have, have done a pretty decent job uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, pulling the ones out of the herd that are more non-violent. Robert Nepper's character certainly seems to be less violent. He's more inquisitive. He's. I think he's going to be a character that's going to be in, internalizing a lot of stuff and, and more more thoughtful and um, not like in a good way thoughtful, but but like calculating and thinking. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, his first first exchange with Telford, and then you've got Gin, Jin. Jin. She's definitely been helpful with Camille. She says some interesting things. We learn a lot about the Lucian Alliance in this episode. Yeah, she gives um, us a little a little info dump at the beginning, which I thought was very helpful. But they've been around for years now, long before season eight, and and it was. Um, yeah, she said twelve to thirteen years. Yeah, which makes sense with what Vala said. The Lucian Alliance didn't start up during the Gould Replicator War. Um, right. Vala was a, probably a member of the Lucian Alliance, or at least loosely affiliated with them in season eight. So it, it does make sense that probably you know around the fall of Cronus and Herorur and all those guys, you know, when the Gould were jockeying for power, this collection of gangs also started started uh, vying for power as well. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense that after the Replicators mostly wiped out the Gould system lords in uh, season eight of SG One in the episode two part episode Reckoning. The, the Lucian Alliance didn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, it explains why they were mobilized so quickly. They they had slowly, gradually gained a foothold, which which explains a lot. And Jin describes the way that they work as warlords. She says they they burn our crops so that we have to rely on them to provide our food. They tell our teachers what to teach. They put weapons in the hands of our children. They're they're you know indoctrinating these villages all over the Milky Way galaxy. They if take you think people about who they think will have use and and threaten to kill their families if they don't follow, sounds yeah, kind of like Admiral Kane from Battlestar. That's how she says she was recruited. Yeah. Was they threatened to kill her family? Uh, well, that's what she says. Yeah, that's that may yeah. be. Uh... Assuming that she's being truthful, I kind of wonder if if at this point she's going to to basically defect from the Lucian Alliance. I think she's a Tokra. <laughs> she's a Tokra. That would be cool. You know, th- there's been rumors around the web that she's a Tokra. And uh, Camille uh, relays information from the IOA that the Lucian Alliance may be planning an attack on Earth. Well, we know that they are much more powerful than they were when they were on SG-1. They stood up against the Hammond, which had been outfitted with all the Asgard shields and weapons, mm-hmm. in the series premiere, Air Part 1, and did a, did a handy job of taking out the Icarus base. We know that they're on Earth... So they're gaining intelligence, and I guess it makes sense that they could be doing some recon before they try and take the planet. But I don't understand why they would want to take Earth over or want to take it into its domain. You know, Earth is Earth is not as technologically savvy as some of these other worlds out there. There, are, there is no Naquita mm. in the Sol system. Yeah, I mean our ships are pretty good. They did try and take one of our ships, Company of Thieves. So Ray reports that the IOA basically wants wants us to keep the Lucian Alliance people around. And then uh, Telford also uses the stones, goes back to report to the military uh, superiors, and he comes back with this list. This compromise, people, yeah. People that the Homeworld Command, presumably Jack O'Neill, had, had some hand in this decision, wants us to keep a few people that we think might prove useful in the future, and Young is allowed to, to dump the rest of them on a planet. Yeah, you can't keep everyone around. Our people are going to start dying of starvation. You know, there's... There's, there, we haven't had a chance to uh, accumulate a lot of resources lately, and we're kind of gliding and, and trying to come to a planet that's going to be fruitful. 
So we we keep an unspecified number of Lucian Alliance people. I think that these guys are going to be maybe sort of like the Makos on mm-hmm. Enterprise. Uh, that we sort of don't know how many there are there, but they have a very specific function that we can use mm-hmm. them for. They had that so wide have, shot at the end of the episode. In, yeah, yeah. Fall like, fall like a, six or seven. There's a wide shot at the end of the episode of those that, who are left in the cargo hold uh, as the rest of them are being herded through the gate. And, mm-hmm. and there are nine people visible in the shot. Oh, you counted. Uh, okay. I counted. There are two women, including Jin. Uh, so there's one other girl. And uh, we've obviously we've kept all the the secondary characters who we've, gotten we've actually been introduced to. So mm-hmm. Varro is staying, Jin is staying, Simeon is staying, mm-hmm. and Kaz is Cause. staying. Oh, good. Okay. And then a few other red shirts, I think. This is a great episode for Colonel Young. I, I bet I bet you were very happy in, in that respect. You know, the, the fight is, is broken out, and he goes in there and beats the crap out of one of those guys. Man, that was violent. Just he is... Up. You know, he is suffering right now from, from the loss of, of his unborn child. And now, man, well, just to oh, begin man. with, just to, to begin everything with. else. Yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, he goes psycho on that guy. He just, you know, sort of interrupting a fight. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't really that big. It wasn't like the Lucian Lions was about to take over the ship again. But he picked the first Lucian Lions guy that he could get his hands on and bashed his skull into the into the yeah. floor. I love the look on Camille's face. I mean, it's like you are out of control. And it's that moment is there's obviously with Young, there are two very disturbing scenes in this episode. And that's one. And then contrast that with what happens with Riley in the shuttle. Mm -hmm. Same sort of, you know, positioning of, of Young over somebody who's lying down you know, causing physical harm with his hands, but mm-hmm. just that, that juxtaposition of this Lucian Alliance guy who he is trying to kill and this, you know, one of his people who he has to kill, he feels. Hi, guys, this is Thomas from Ontario. I'm just calling about the Stargate Universe episode, Aftermath. It's different. i got to say, I didn't see Riley's death coming. I thought maybe they'd bring in one of the Lucian Alliance guys. They'd say, oh, I know how to do... I know how to perform surgery or something, and they'd save them, but I guess they couldn't do that, because otherwise they would have used them in the season one finale, but just the way they Riley died, like, they killed him. It, was, it really made me ask myself, is this really the Stargate that I've come to love? I mean, I... It just doesn't seem the same at all. Anyways, the episode was pretty good and uh rushed on the bridge and more hallucinations making me wonder is that guy still mentally secure but i guess only time will tell okay so the 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 atmosphere is like the rotational or whatever is is faster and so the there's this atmospheric problem the ship loses it's like it's like an emp you know tears planet's through the dangerous ship. yeah planet's dangerous and rush didn't recognize it at first Yep, he missed it, and the ship comes crashing down. Riley is pinned. Everyone else is pretty much okay. This kid who seems to have nine lives uh, is lost in this in this episode. You know, he yeah. he got and he rattles him off to TJ. Huh? He rattles him off to TJ. He All does. these terrible things that have happened to him. An explosion got shot by the Lucians, and now you know he he thought that uh, someone was looking out for him, or it just wasn't his time. Well, he no, he wouldn't think that someone was looking out for him. He he professes his faith, which is interesting, to a sunset. I thought that that was very nice camera work. 
The sun is – did you notice that in the, the scene with the shuttle? The sun is setting. It's astounding. It is – Beautiful. When it's, as soon as they talk about faith, they put, they put the light right in, in the line with the camera. Yeah, and there's two different versions. Go and look at the screen caps that David did. There's two different versions. There's when the sun is brightest and it's like almost overwhelming. The light is, is overwhelming the shot mm-hmm. when TJ is talking with, with Riley. And then there's another one a moment later where the sun has gone down a little bit. Down. So it's it's still kind of glowing, but I that's uh, Will Waring know, did a great job. Will Waring and whoever his director of photography was on this episode just that may be the most the the two most beautiful shots yeah. that I've yeah. seen on SGU. Two paws up. Uh great beats between uh between him and TJ and TJ reveals her secret to him. Well, with these guys, it was kind of a who am I going to tell because they already knew that he was dead at that yeah. point. So we were wondering at the end of Intervention last week whether TJ believed that that, that experience was real and that her, her baby is alive. She, had, um, she did not take the nebula as a sign. So we basically, I mean, Riley asks her that question. Do you believe mm-hmm. that that mm-hmm. was real? She gives a really interesting answer, and it's, it's still kind of ambiguous. Um, but it's really, We've it's seen really beings that are more powerful than us, or are aware of creatures that are that are higher than us. Uh, who knows? Yeah. And I also want to mention so she, real quick that Doctor Park has also overheard this detail about the baby. So yeah, and they have apparently pointed that out to us uh, by panning over to her mm-hmm. at the end of the scene. So I expect that to come back. I expect uh, Park to say something to her at some point. Well, she's 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 kind of been a troublesome little bitch in the past, so it'll be interesting to see. <laughs> she's you know, nice. I like her. You you do, well. She's very two faced. You know, with yeah. men, she's like this. I mean, she's kind of a bitch. So I I think that this is going to be grounds for her. I, I'm with you. I think that this is going to be grounds for her character to develop. Yeah, and we've seen TJ and and Lisa. Yes. Sort of have have personal emotional moments together in the past. Yeah. At least as far as a as, as a doctor and a patient goes, you know, when they, with their psych evaluation. So yeah, and I I think I think it was in time that I'm thinking about when Chloe dies in the in the averted timeline. That TJ ends up in the corridor crying, and Lisa's there with her. Mm. So TJ's answer to to Riley's question is basically she has to hold out for the possibility because it's the only way that she can cope with what's mm-hmm. gone on. Is to mm-hmm. hold this this one little piece in the back of her mind that it might that it might be true. Coping is a lot of what these people do. Pining and coping, yeah. a lot of pining, yeah. a lot of coping. Shows <laughs> a, a lot of coping going on it, with Young's character. Obviously, his arc so far has been about not coping so well. And there's more alcohol at the end of this episode. I think there is there is drowning your sorrows in a bottle. They unbury the Stargate. Very very neat sequence there. The travel stargate is in sections, so I think what they what they did was uh, they just buried that one section of the gate there. When I was up in Vancouver the a while ago, meat. yeah, the uh, that that they just took a section of it and kind of buried it under that rock there. Another great location. They've they've done some great jobs with locations this year. Great selections, very mm-hmm. neat. That that whole exchange between <laughs> between Scott and and Eli is like, do you do you want me to put? Can I can I push the button, please? And just to, that harkening back to that that information that we learned in the mo- that we learned in the movie. If you if you uh, if you disturb uh, Nakwada enough with a strong enough explosion, it will cascade and destroy the Stargate as well. And Stargates, when they're very hard to destroy, but when you do get them to blow up, we are talking cataclysmic. Kiss yeah. your planet goodbye. Yeah. A, a huge chunk of it, and everything else wouldn't survive anyway. So, but they do unbury the gate, and Young comes to the planet, uh, knowing that uh, Riley's going to die. 
great scene. He he sits down next to him and takes his hat off. And what should I tell your folks? You know, I got to tell you, I was sick to my stomach as soon as Young entered the shuttle. Why? I did not. I did not know what was going to happen, but obviously we knew Riley was was dead. We knew that as good TJ as had, yeah, as good as dead. TJ had had already said both to Riley and to Young, "I'm not going to leave him here." Yeah, to die alone. So there's ships got less of, than three hours. What are you going to do? Countdown clock is running. You know, is is Young going to have to face TJ and basically drag her kicking and screaming away from her patient mm-hmm. to let Riley die alone? Uh, in order to get back to destiny and not be stranded on this planet, is is Young going to kill him? And uh, I felt sick to my stomach, and I thought Young is going to kill him. The only question is, is he going to do it against Riley's will, or is Riley going to ask for it? And I think that because Riley asked for it, and he told him that he was in pain, whether or not it was true. Yeah, we uh, already took. We already learned earlier that he couldn't feel anything. Yeah, he said early on that he couldn't feel anything. Obviously, when they were trying to lift the the bulkhead up, off yeah, of he was in pain then. <laughs> he was screaming, um, so he's probably feeling some pain. Um, but it seemed like he was maybe kind of giving Young an excuse. You know, they both knew that it had to happen for the good of everyone else to get back to the ship on time. So it was like telling him that he was in pain and saying please. It, it felt to me like he was giving deliberately giving Young an excuse. And they both knew it. So the fact that Riley did that, props to his character. Such a a huge way for him to go out. Such a noble thing for him to do for the good of his his crewmates. But you know, anyone to blame Young. If it had gone the other way, if Young had basically made this decision to end his life without him asking for it, I I can't even tell you that that might have been that might have been too much for uh, for. Disturbing me in terms of. I don't of, think that they could have done that with that character. They're taking Young to a very dark place. Obviously, mm-hmm. um, he's he's going super dark, and he is after this episode. He is in he is in hell, and and I I only hope that he starts coming back out of it sooner rather than later. I hope it's not all of season two uh, in this in this place. Just getting mm-hmm. worse and worse. But yeah, if he had to, if he had done it without Riley asking for it, that would have been so much more disturbing. As it is, it's a very disturbing scene. It's one of the more carnal, if not the most carnal f- sequence that Stargate has ever done. I felt like I was watching Saving Private Ryan. Mm. I felt like this I was sur- watching a war movie. Extremely well achieved. That was a bold thing to do, and it was done exceptionally well. Tasteful as you can get, they 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 did it. Uh, they did it with with taste and with care. And I was holding my breath the entire time. I, I was I was holding my breath as much as he was. Just the the look on his face. Oh man. Yeah, it it really it really bothered me. It was hard to watch, and it was supposed to be hard to watch. Mm-hmm. It's like Charlie I dying. I mean, you, you see him suffering. You you see. No, it was not like Charlie dying. You don't it think was, so, huh? No, it it was so close. In terms of the camera was tied up on his face, you basically have Young's POV um, looking into this guy's eyes. Yeah, uh, Riley didn't yeah. didn't close his eyes. He didn't look away. He looked at Young as he was dying, mm-hmm. and we saw basically every moment of it, every struggle mm-hmm. for breath until it was over. I've I've never seen a death like that on television before. Mm-hmm. It was so um, you saw so much of it so intimately. You were mm-hmm. put in in Young's uniform to go through that experience with him. Because you know it would what, have been we, disturbing what we if could they have did done. directly POV, 
right right through his eyes. That yeah. would have been disturbing. <laughs> and have him looking into the have him looking into the yeah. camera. Yeah, it, that it was pretty close to that. You know, typically what television shows do, even even I think Battlestar, which did some dark stuff, would you know they would have young end Riley's life, but they wouldn't show it. They wouldn't show it quite mm-hmm. quite nearly so closely and personally. Uh, they would make it clear that that's what was going on, and then cut to a wide shot so that it's not as intimate, mm-hmm. and then sort of maybe end the scene. Yeah, kind of sparing the kids in the audience. Yeah. This was not sparing the kids. This was, this was about as hard to watch as it gets. But what a great character. Man, that guy was so lovable from the first episode. He felt to me like one of the only people on the ship who everybody probably liked. Mm-hmm. And his little tribute there. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. That was good. Because you're expecting at this point music. You're expecting, okay, another song. They're going to pick another song. And they don't. Um, and instead, you hear some of Joel's music, which I thought was a nice touch after after Riley's uh, remarks. Um, yeah, and Riley's remarks are, there, there's silence. There's no music mm-hmm. during Riley's video. Go to Gate World and look at the aftermath page in the episode guide. If you want to watch that video in its entirety, what they actually did was they took one of the Kino webisodes from last year that Riley did. And oh, that was previously recorded from the end of that. Yeah, that was one of the Kino webisodes. Ah. Um, so the the whole thing is a little over two minutes, and you can watch it online. It, it's very touching. I think that th- th- that scene also illustrates, I think, one of the flaws of the show, where everyone is just willing to to dump their emotions into these things, in, into these little little floating balls, and there's no security whatsoever. Eli can just watch whatever he wants. I really mm. have a problem with that because I, I think it stretches believability because mm. I, w- I would not record my intimate impressions into one of those things knowing that it was mm. going to be sent to a central database where Eli or anyone who had access to that that remote, to that interface, uh, could play whatever they wanted whenever they wanted. I would not do it. Someone like Greer... You know, would not. I don't believe it. I don't. I don't. I don't believe that. I think that stretches credibility. Where you know he's talking mm. about the best way to go out in the star in in uh, the episode light. It's just hard to believe. There's got to be some kind of a. I, I, I just don't buy that. I don't buy it. I wouldn't yeah, talk. It. Would you? Would you talk in it? Would you write a? Would you write a diary knowing into that thing, knowing that you were? I don't know. Talking to basically talking to Eli. If it's the sort of thing where those messages might one day arrive in the hands of my family back home uh, and it's that or nothing then i might be willing to but yeah it's it's kind of a conceit uh of the storytelling that that's going on and i have to think that at least on board the ship there's a measure of security that young has basically said eli's in charge of this uh he gets access to this stuff and and i do and nobody else does i've just really been surprised that it hasn't been more expressly stated since it's used as such a as, as such a tool on the on the the show you know, it's just I, I find I find it hard to believe some of the things that I'm hearing uh, them talk about. I, I'm glad that I'm hearing it. I just don't I just don't believe that they would be in a, that they're in a position to say some of the things that they say. So be as yeah, intimate this was, as they are. This was a great intimate little personal moment mm-hmm. for Riley, and it fit the end of the episode so beautifully. You know, he he talks about it's it's not that it's not that uh, I'm stuck out here on this awful ship. That's it's really that I'm not there. It's, it's not being there. With with my family for all those all those events that you miss, mm-hmm. I, I wonder when they recorded that Kino webisode if they knew that they were going to kill Riley off and, and use it because it fits so well. 
Mm-hmm. It's such a beautiful little piece, and you don't necessarily get those intimate little moments no. with with many of the characters in the in the webisodes. They're they're kind of um, which I think is another missed opportunity. A lot of the webisodes they feel kind of like throwaways, whereas I I expected um, the webisodes to be much more integrated and kind of like show you things that uh, the the episode deliberately sets up situations to show you things. Uh, to, to encourage you to go online and watch this stuff and gain a deeper insight into the character. Whereas, I mean, Kino races are, are fun, you know, and you, and you definitely need to have them. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 like I just revealed, I haven't, I haven't even seen them all. I've seen most of them, but I, I don't feel a, a drive to watch them. I don't feel like I'm missing much of anything. So we have lost our second and presumably final shuttlecraft. You, you think, we have no well, shuttles. We, we have we do have no shuttles, but do, do you and think that we we'll never get more? Can only only explore planets by Stargate now, unless I don't know there were some reason some some place where we could find more shuttles. I, I suspect more shuttles are in our future, if for no other reason than that is an awfully cool set and a cool utility to have. The shuttle set is is still up, so mm-hmm. I suspect that we'll be. Uh, We'll be seeing that set again. I suspect that uh, when we encounter some other ancient things in the future, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if we encounter a, another one. And so the episode ends with Rush facing the fact that he's probably just as responsible for Riley's death as anybody because he picked this planet, dropped this out of FTL, sent the shuttle there, even after he found out from Franklin that it's a dangerous planet. Mm-hmm. And then he does it again. He finds something else on his yeah. little computer screen and decides to take the ship out of FTL. He takes the now, ship out of FTL? I think that's the impression I got was that okay. he had, he had, uh, had made that decision. So we are now approaching something, an object, and the, the, the episode is left on a cliffhanger. We do not know what it is, but we are flying towards it. And if you've read the spoilers online, of course you know what it is, but we're not going to say it here. Mm-mm. Interesting, though, I, I may change my mind next week when we talk about uh, Awakening, which is episode three. But the cliffhanger ending on this, as far as it was a cliffhanger, kind of felt like a dud to me. I wanted to see what it was. Really? And it I... seems like it would have been a bigger impact if we would have had seen something cool looming that Destiny had just arrived on. And then you've got to come back next week and tune in. Yeah, I was expecting to see it. I was expecting to see whatever it was. What I, well, what I was actually expecting was there to be no cliffhanger whatsoever. So this is kind of cool that we got something. But once... Uh, yeah. Once they did reveal that, uh, you know, you need to come in next week to, to see what's going to happen. I'm, su- I'm surprised that we didn't even see it, like, the rear end of it in the viewer. So, mm-hmm. But if you've seen the teaser, you know what it is. So it's kind of cool. I and mean, we get to talk about that next week. Next week is Awakening. I'm really excited about this episode, as are a lot of people. So don't miss it. It airs Tuesday on Sci-Fi Channel. And Friday, if you live in Canada, it'll be on Space on Sci-Fi in Australia, and then a week Tuesday in the UK. And we have some listener mail. I think all of our listener mail this week is about this episode, Aftermath. So let's get into the mailbag. Listener mail. Hey, this is Abby from Fort Myers. I have a minor quibble for y'all it, well, it's minor compared to other events in Aftermath, but I'm just wondering where Colonel Young got the glasses he was wearing at the beginning of the episode, because I, for one, did not remember seeing him in any of the season one episodes. 
just wanted to know what you guys thought of that. Uh, thanks. Bye. You know, I can't remember the specific episode, but I'm pretty sure those glasses were last season. I, I think we saw them, like, once. Do you recall that? I don't remember seeing them with him with glasses. I, I saw the photos from this episode before it aired and okay. thought that it was weird that he was wearing those glasses. I'm um, pretty sure I've he, seen him wear them before. Maybe he picked them up off of somebody's dead body, like in the first season of Lost when we when we found uh, the two pairs of glasses and, and glued them together for, for Sawyer. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's definitely what I thought of too. Hello guys, this is Pedro calling from Portugal. First time caller, long time listener. I was listening to your podcast, number 102, and after watching last night's uh, SGU's episode, Aftermath, I was thinking about the first season of SG1, and it got me thinking. Uh, looking at that planet, the obelisk planet, do you think we could be looking at the furlings? Well, just a thought. Uh, it has been some years watching Stargate, and uh, I really would like the furlings to appear for the first time. Just a thought. I would like to know your opinion about this. Have a good one, and keep on, keep on doing a good work with the podcast. Bye-bye. And here's this week's listener question. As you might expect, we want to hear what you thought about this week's new episode of SGU, Awakening. We are very excited to watch it, so watch it on Tuesday or on Friday, and give us a call on the podcast hotline. I think we need those voicemails by end of day Saturday, probably is about the latest, if you want yeah. to make sure to get it into next week's show. I want to have as many of your pretty voices as we can get. End of day Saturday is when uh, the editor starts slicing it. So, But if you want us to directly comment on something, if, if you have a question or something that you want to uh, specifically raise our attention to, uh, we have to have it by end of day Friday because Saturday is when we record. If you there want us to interact with it, then Friday. Yeah. Otherwise, we might still be able to squeeze you in if you, if you record it by Saturday. So that number is area code 951262. 1647. If you didn't get your pencil out quick enough, you can find that on the show notes page or the podcast page at gateworld.net slash podcast. And if you don't want to call a U.S.-based phone number, you can always email in a brief audio recording to webmaster at gateworld.net. So, MP3 preferred. MP3 would be nice. October 18th is the date for that show, Awakening. And then we'll be on to Pathogen, Episode 4. And then on November 1st, we're talking about Episode 5, Cloverdale. Well, that's our show, everybody. Thanks once again for tuning into the podcast this week. Thanks once again to Russell for editing our show for us. Uh, the Gate World Podcast is executive produced by Darren and David <laughs> and is edited by Russell. And don't forget, the Tammy Zone is floating around out there. There should be a new episode very soon. Yep, episode four, I believe, of A Tammy Zone. Correct. And you can always hop over to the podcast feedback thread at GateWorld Forum and talk about this podcast, or there's also a Tammy Zone feedback thread over there. And if you want links to anything that we talked about today, Lucian Alliance, past episodes of SG-1 that you haven't seen, head over to GateWorld and look up the episode number 103 show notes. You can also leave us your pithy comments there. Name in town, name in town, name in town, if you wish to opine. Somebody is a Bill O'Reilly fan. <laughs> I do watch him every once in a while. 
<laughs> Every once in a while, yeah. You just rattled that off like you're an occasional viewer. <laughs> From GateWorld, this is David. And this is Darren. And we will talk to you very soon for another installment of the GateWorld Podcast.